The Free For All Roundtable. Round two. On round two today, Laura Babcock is here from Power Group Communications, also host of The O Show. Gavin Tai is a Toronto lawyer. Deepika Demerla, Mississauga City Councillor. Okay, well, actually, Deepika, let me start with you because yesterday's federal mini-budget had a lot about housing, and I wonder if that brings any degree of satisfaction. We obsess over housing in Toronto, housing in the Greenbelt. We don't talk a lot about housing in Mississauga. What did you see? Well, you know, it's always good to see um, any money for housing, but I'll be honest, John, that um, not enough, absolutely not enough. And one area that we really is putting pressure indirectly on housing really is the fact that um, asylum seekers who are now coming into the region of Peel are not funded by the federal government. So what they are doing is they are coming into our shelter system um, and because asylum and, you know, our shelter system wasn't built to accept asylum seekers, but they're being forced there because the federal government isn't funding them. So now our shelters are at 320 percent of capacity and we're turning people away and more and more people are sleeping rough, including some of these asylum seekers. So really, I was what I was really disappointed with, I was hoping to see that there would be some funding for these asylum seekers, who, which is putting pressure on our shelter system and creating a lot of, I guess, people without shelter in Mississauga in our neighborhoods. I was very disappointed to see that there wasn't anything on that one. That's the one that really struck me. Gavin, I'll let you take your analysis in any direction, but I will harp on the fact that this government was supposed to run three deficits that were going to build Canada up, then we were going to balance the budget, and that was like in the last decade. Yeah, that's the terrifying part. And when we pick up on issues like housing and all the rest of it, it costs money. And one of the things that I think people forget about when they talk about deficits, what is a deficit? A deficit is pretty simple. It means you're spending more than you make. And if you did that in your household and you spent more than you made uh, every month, you would accumulate a very large thing called debt. That debt continues to grow as we see it to the point where the cost of servicing your debt, the cost of paying the interest on what you owe is going to prevent you from doing all the things you want to do. And that's exactly what's happening with this government. The government has borrowed so much money and continues to borrow so much money that they have to keep paying the interest on the debt that they've already accumulated. And they're borrowing, frankly, more to pay that. They just don't have the money to do the things they need to do, including housing and all of the other things that we need. And it's a real problem. Laura Babcock, governments that have a clock ticking toward the next election usually try to promise you that they will balance the budget before Election Day. The the feds aren't doing that. No, they're not doing that. And what's disturbing to me is that the money that they are allotting towards housing, they're doing it over six years, and it doesn't really take effect some of these ideas until election year. Uh, we need the help right now. And to uh, the other panelists' comments about the lack of the pressure on shelter systems from asylum seekers, when people are coming to this country, refugees, asylum seekers, people who need Canada's support, and we need immigration, we need to have a system that supports those complex needs. It's not just the shelters that have pressure on them, it's the food banks, it's also the clinics that are providing care for their emergency and complex medical needs and mental health needs. I mean, so it's, it's wonderful that Canada is a welcoming country, but this government so far has failed to put in the structures in place to support these, welcome, these newcomers to Canada 
and be able to take care of the Canadians who are already here. And so this is something we should have heard more about because it is a key part in the housing crisis. Also, we should have heard more from them about a sense of urgency. When you have the opponent define your economic statement because you couldn't come out with a way to define it, that's a communications problem. And this government might have some good policies, the mortgage charter, nice idea, but they need to communicate a sense of urgency, John, because we're going into a holiday to Gavin's point. We're looking at our family budgets. We're not wanting to spend more than we can. We're not sure that this economy is going to be sound. And we see people who are living in homelessness all over the place. And it's pretty scary for Canadians. So this government, I think, failed on a communications level yesterday. Not sure if you folks had a chance to listen to my conversation with the education minister as we were preparing for this roundtable. But uh, I asked him if he was going to be taking any action on on this business of parents complaining about anti-Semitic acts and actions and slurs in schools. I'm, you know, Gavin, I'll start with you. Um, I don't know that a letter to the board necessarily does the trick. No, it doesn't. I mean, I think it's really troubling. And I think the the whole anti-Semitism, the rise of that of that true evil uh, that we've seen throughout history, and you, and you can feel it, it's palpable, the, the fear in the Jewish community, because it's real for them. This is a, their history. Um, going back centuries. I mean, not just in the last century, but centuries before that. And and this is really, you know, really, really troubling in Canada, where we don't have the greatest record in terms of um, of the Jewish community. We don't have a, we have a record, for example, of turning away Holocaust, uh, people fleeing the Holocaust. And we have our, a minister at the time who said none is too many when they were talking about Jewish immigration. This is really important stuff. And I'm, I'm I think that it's important for us to get the historical context of why the Jewish community is so fearful and to understand that and for our young people to understand that. So I'm encouraged that the government is bringing this very important historical uh, uh, fact to, into the education curriculum again and emphasizing it. But Laura Babcock, maybe it's time for a zero tolerance approach. A high school student makes the Nazi salute. Get out. Well, I think always education before kicking them out, because uh, if you live in my neighborhood, there are too many teenagers that aren't in school wandering around getting into trouble, John. So I don't ever want to just throw kids out on the street. But I'll say this. Um, the guy, When I was listening to Leche, I thought, OK, you know, I, I like what he's saying about teach them how to think critically. And, and I was actually listening to him going, OK, he's making some good points. But then it started to sound to me like he was out of touch with how teenagers learn information. They are not learning about this war and forming their political foreign policy opinions based on what their teachers are saying. I can guarantee it. They're learning it off of TikTok where they spend all of their time. I have two teenagers and there is a ton of content about what's going on in Israel and Palestine on TikTok. So if this government can spend all kinds of money promoting online gaming and all kinds of money promoting what they're doing with renewable energy, I hear those ads constantly. Why can't they do some public service announcements where kids actually see them? Make some good TikToks about this. You know, just calling up teachers and boards constantly saying, make sure you don't bring your politics in the classroom. Too late. The kids are getting the politics before they ever walk into class. Yeah, Deepika, I mean, these things have been happening, these acts and attacks, and you sort of think it, it requires more urgency in trying to tamp it down. Agreed. And I think Laura's on to something. I think you, we, we, and I do sort of think that there have to be maybe whether it's no, don't kick them out of school because maybe they just get into more trouble, but some consequences, serious consequences for not, for, um, 
any any act of anti-Semitism. So there's the the near term or the immediate, which is consequences, and then the long term, which is education. But I think Laura makes a good point. Maybe um, the Ministry of Education needs to be putting little podcasts about uh, you know anti-Semitism and why it's wrong on TikTok, because just putting it in the curriculum isn't enough, um, whether kids listen to students, uh, their teachers versus what they're listening to on TikTok. So, but, you know, I, I always think that anti-Semitism is one of the oldest hates in our world, right? I mean, it's absolutely perhaps one of the most ancient hates. And it doesn't take much, just anything, and then it just flares up. And so what is that solution you know some somewhat elusive but we have to keep trying and i i like the idea of let's put out those public service ads uh, absolutely if that's what it takes let's let the governments go on TikTok, and there have to be in the near term strong consequences for kids who uh, indulge in anti-Semitism or adults. Speaking of where people get their information, kind of a disturbing story today. Six journalism programs in Canada have either shut down or paused admissions in the last 12 months. Laura, you make your life in media and messaging, so I'll start with you on this one. I know we could easily be accused of, oh, look at you people in the mainstream legacy media complaining about new media, but not a lot of you know malfeasance in government and business is discovered by bloggers. Yeah, you know what, John? So my kids have two parents who make their living in the media, right? I mean, I own a PR firm as well, but it's all interrelated. Um, and so they have grown up understanding how we process information, how deeply we care about the world. We talk about it every night at dinner. They've been reading the paper since they were kids. And they don't have a high regard for journalism. Because again, and I keep emphasizing this, but I feel like I'm going blue in the face. Um, they are not getting their, so their news from any of the accredited legacy media outlets that we get ours from. They get their news from TikTokers who kind of fuse things down into eight second little reels. And it's very powerful. It's kind of like what slot machines do to the adult brain or our phone sending us message notifications does to make us respond. It's almost Pavlovian, okay? So they have no interest in journalism. They don't see it as a viable business. They don't think it has any kind of a future, whereas they see the future being in all new media constructs. And I do do it. The show is on YouTube for a reason because I live around teenagers and I knew that I had to get my stuff on YouTube if I was going to continue to be able to have important conversations. So these journalism programs are shutting down because there's no interest in going into what they consider a dying art. But I do think that journalism with trained standards is incredibly important. And I wish that there would be more of a, a work together between news organizations and the new media. Instead of avoiding it, learn it, be the best at it, do your own TikToks. Deepika, one of the things I like about uh, our friends at the Toronto Star is they're sort of all in. They've got a Queen's Park reporter, a City Hall reporter, an education reporter, a housing reporter, immigration reporter. Uh, that kind of stuff keeps politicians and business honest. But I tend to agree with Laura Babcock. I don't know if there's much of a future in it. So I, I was thinking about that. You know, it's, it, it's concerning but hardly surprising to hear that, you know, interest in journalism programs is dwindling influencers sometimes i think are the new journalists i i hear laura because my own daughter in her early 20s i you know i'm always impressed because she's listening to these podcasts on 
anti-colonialism and all of this. And I'm that's great that she's listening. But who is she listening? Like, who are these people? And I have no idea because it's some video, some guy talking about something. But, you know, what are his credentials? So I wonder if the journalism programs really need a new program that says, if you want to be a blogger, but a credible blogger, here's the program. So more entrepreneurial. So the traditional journalism school model is training people to work for a large media company and maybe the the new market is training them to become their own bloggers their own influencers but you know that critical question is it's great you have this following but what's your street cred and who's monitoring the street cred and that's what legacy media that's its strength uh, and how do you bring that legacy media strength of street cred to these independent media outlets. I think that's the challenge. Gavin, Ty, I just know if I check on the texts during the newscast that somebody's going to go, ha, 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 look at you, legacy media going out of style. It's like, yeah, but you're listening, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, no, uh, you know, it's, it's troubling because I think what we're seeing is a huge shift in media, and we've talked about this before, but media has changed. I mean, if the medium is the message, the medium has certainly changed. It's not longer, you know, it doesn't matter if you, there's not everyone owns a radio tower now. Everyone owns a television station. Everyone can be anything. And, you know, that is troubling because one of the things is journalism used to be a profession. And one of the things about professions is they have ethics, they have standards, uh, and that people can therefore trust that profession. They can therefore trust what that uh, group has to say, be it in any group of, that uh, we talk about in society. Society. And I think it is really troubling because what we see is the disintegration of journalism, frankly, as a profession. Once we see the erosion of it, of the professional schools, if we see the professional standards, such that just anybody can be uh, a journalist, anybody can be out there saying whatever they want, whenever they want. And therefore, people have very little baseline credible information that everybody agrees with. And that's really the fundamental, I think, erosion of where we are as a society is that we don't all necessarily agree on what happened. I mean, today's the anniversary of JFK's assassination. Everybody agrees that that happened on that day. They may have different theories about how it happened, but that baseline of information is critical to any functioning society, and I think it's a real problem that we don't have it. Okay, and you know that the moonshot was actually done in a TV studio in Florida. <laughs> there was a song about that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all. Good, great discussion. Dipika Demerla, Gavin Ty, and Laura Babcock. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Catch the roundtable, round one at 7.45, round two at 8.45. Weekday mornings on More in the Morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.